Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode number 32. And we're going to get a little wild here in this episode. Not that we usually don't get somewhat wild in other episodes, but this one will be all about contact with angelic beings who are going to tell us what we need to do to save humanity and bring utopia to the earth. Along with the millennial reign of Christ, the second coming, all that stuff. And of course, we're talking about the visions given to Mr. John D. and Edward Kelly in their angelic conversations. Now, many skeptics will say that this was just figments of their imagination or deep esoteric layers of psychological espionage and manipulation, especially on the part of Edward Kelly. Or maybe it was John D. doing the manipulating. It was mirrors within mirrors within mirrors of psychological manipulation and it was just sheer genius all these deceptions that they were engaging in and the different layers of reality that they were working in or alternatively were these just some poor bastards who probably shouldn't have been dabbling with all of this divination and led to their souls being traumatized in a myriad of ways And if they had just listened to the Catholic teachings on dealing with said spirits, perhaps all of that could have been avoided. But nonetheless, the information given by these so-called angelic entities, some might call them fallen, well, they're very interesting in context with previous podcast episodes and research that we've done on this channel. And we're going to set aside the secular explanation of these angelic conversations as being figments of their imagination, but still keep the deep psychological manipulation narrative, just tie it to both the spiritual and temporal realms. And I think, actually, objectively speaking, the angelic interpretation that these were actual spiritual entities, perhaps demonic or fallen angelic ones, will let you decide. Well, that actually lines up with a lot more objective reasoning and explanations on these phenomenon. So without further ado, let's get wild here on John Dee and his Empire of Angels and their New World Order. Greetings and welcome to episode number 32. And I'm sorry if there's a little background noise here or there. It's very hot right now, and I have to have my AC on to keep my computer from overheating. With that being said, we're going to talk today about Mr. John D. and Mr. Edward Kelly and their adventures in dabbling with angelic beings, so-called, and their conversations with them. And the main book will be sourcing our information from and extracting things from is called John D. and the Empire of Angels by Mr. Jason Louv. And we'll probably bring in some elements of the John D. chapter in the book Jewish Revolutionary Spirit by E. Michael Jones. 
probably get to some of that more in the second hour. But nonetheless, I think that the book by Mr. Louvre is excellent on this topic, despite myself having some very fundamental issues or differences with his worldview. And I guess to begin, we'll just kind of summarize some of the things that I would, I guess, comment on with his writing and the book in general. So, first off, I'd say he makes some pretty good critiques of Protestantism and figures like Luther and Calvinism and some of their more fanatical, black-and-white way of looking at things. And at times he does respect Catholicism, it would seem, and basically alludes to how it's a lot more forgiving than those factions of Protestantism and there's more of a focus on that. But he mostly promotes the black legend, Whig history propaganda, which is especially directed against Spain, and kind of seems like an Anglophile at times, despite his sort of occult worldview that tends to lean a bit more towards, I guess, Eastern religion, maybe Buddhism, something like that. That seems to be what he's more enamored with. And he's fairly philo-Semitic. He seems to give the more Jewish version of the Inquisition. And he uses odd language, like calling Bloody Mary's rule a holocaust of Protestants, whereas Elizabeth I was obviously much more enlightened and tolerant. And, of course, Mr. John Dee was working with her to varying degrees, and he has a much more favorable view of John Dee. Um, so... As far as I've read, Elizabeth I's reign wasn't as tolerant as our modern history makes it out to be, and perhaps, on the whole, even more intolerant than Bloody Mary's reign. But that's another topic for another time. Uh, he seems to also blame religious battles between Catholics and Protestants as being kind of the source of the woes of the world, and that Hermeticism, which of course John Dee is promoting along with various other figures in the book, as kind of like the antidote to this. And this is tied to the Renaissance humanism that most people see as bringing about some sort of liberal progressive tradition, something to that effect. So obviously more in line with the Masonic Enlightenment principles, but having a more esoteric flavor tied to ritual magic because he himself is a ritual magician, as far as I can tell. And I would say also see the Enlightenment genocide part of occult Catholicism when we talked about the Young Turks Revolution and also the video war, what is it good for in this series? Because if the Enlightenment is so amazing and stops religious wars, well, it certainly creates a lot of genocide in the name of secular atheism, or at least what it led to. But of course, we know that the Freemasonic tendency is to feign religion when it's convenient, but at the heart of it, it's sort of a relativist deism at best in terms of having a vision of God and then a materialistic, atheistic version at worst that is more like the crazy Jacobins and Bolsheviks and people like that. And later on the book, he discusses Crowley a lot. Now, even though he is pro-magic, he is not very sympathetic to Crowley in a lot of instances and views him much more as a very flawed man despite having some legit magical ideas. I guess that's the basic sense 
of Crowley I get from him. And he's more sympathetic to John D, despite D's arrogance and manipulation and the enabling of torture of others at times. That seems to be overlooked, but when other regimes are you know, different factions like the Catholics or Protestants are doing those same things, then that's religious intolerance. But the hermetic side of that, it's kind of glossed over. At least that's my general perception coming from the writings. But nonetheless, he's a very good writer, can be very funny at times. Uh, I think it's really an excellent book on the topic despite those basic red flags that I would say need to be considered for anybody looking into it. And I do believe he sort of sometimes promotes polygamy and stuff like that. That seems to be kind of par for the course with ritual magic tied to, I guess, some sort of relativism. So obviously wouldn't agree with that either. Um, but I guess that means there wouldn't be much of a problem with D and Kelly wife-swapping which is what the so-called angels command them to do later on. As people probably know, that's one of the more famous instances of the drama. And basically to sum it up, he's seemingly more pro-Gnosticism, masonry. He seems to have a reverence for Elaine Pagels and her viewpoints. And I guess the irony here is I agree with him on so many things, but... Often is the case, it's for the entirely opposite reasons or wrong reasons in which I agree. So that's more of my subjective analysis and interpretation. People can take that for what they will. But moving on, let's go into what the book reveals that is relevant to all the things that we've gone through in the past on the Schism 206 channel or in the Rockstar Esoterica members section of the website. And I'd say, first off, if people are coming at it from the Christian angle, be it Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever, well, it seems very odd that these angels are telling them to wife swap. That seems like it would violate one of the primary commandments. And if Christ says, if you love me, obey my commandments, why is it that in this instance they get to supersede it with this direct subjective gnosis that they're getting outside of the church and so he's obviously in protestant britain so that's part of the culture and if people are leaning towards dissenting from the church of england which again is still tied to a lot of catholic understanding and principles then you can see that with d where this is breaking away into hermeticism that's going to lead into a lot of the dissenting factions that are going to lead into freemasonry in the 18th century, bringing about the quote-unquote enlightenment. And that's basically Louv's take. John Dee is sort of a grandfather of Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, especially Scottish Rite Freemasonry. And when we talk about Scottish Rite, we're talking about the Albert Pike version, not the different battles of Jacobite versus Whig Masonry that was going on in England. We've talked about this before, how the Jacobite Masonry was more about the Catholic side of things, trying to get a Stuart monarch back on the throne and setting aside any varying degrees of murkiness within that battle, it essentially ends up being the type of masonry that we read from all the time in the Schism 206 research. The Halls, the Pikes, and the Blavatskys, even if it's called Theosophy, it's still a lot of the same fundamental principles. So, from the Christian standpoint, regardless of all of that, 
I think it's safe to assume that most people would agree that John Dee and Edward Kelly, especially once the Weiss swapping came out, was very much a demonic manipulation. Now, it's pretty interesting to see what the demons are targeting and directing them towards and who they want them to avoid. To me, that would give some interesting insights, especially if it coordinated with other things that we've been researching and fleshing out in the historical realm and being as objective as we can be about it. And one of those things is that John Dee and Edward Kelly are much safer in Protestant areas, and this corresponds with what we talked about with the Bavarian Illuminati and the Freemasonic takeover that we demonstrated in Barwell's Jacobinism, where all of those conspirators found that their Masonic ideas spread much, much quicker in Protestant areas, and they were much more cautious in the Catholic areas. And this is no different a few hundred years before all of that was going down with John Dee and Edward Kelly. Now, there are some Catholic territories that are strangely enough a safe haven for them, but they're very few, and one of them is, surprise, surprise, Prague, where Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who was surrounded by many esoteric Kabbalistic Jews, as we went through in the Age of Secrecy, Kabbalah, and Christendom podcast. So it seems very strange that these angels are directing these two poor souls to a place where there's tons of Kabbalistic Jews selling the Holy Roman Emperor unicorn horns and telling him that they have magical powers, and also that these angels are guiding Dean Kelly to avoid the Jesuits. And Louvre even reveals on page 283 that the burning of their own diaries was because they were terrified of the angels they had conjured, or the spirits. But, apparently there were missing sections of this diary recovered later on, and it revealed a very different fear. And reading verbatim, it says, quote, The recovery of the missing section put to rest the long-assumed narrative that Dee and Kelly had burned their diaries because they were terrified of the spirits they had conjured and revealed who they were truly terrified of, the Jesuits. And so it would seem odd to me that these two guys, who are probably demonically oppressed and maybe even possessed, especially Kelly since he is the psychic medium through which these spirits are manifesting, well, in their private journals, they are actually terrified of the Jesuits. So, the demonic is inclining them to fear the Jesuits. And if thus, this is a spiritual battle, and Satan is revealing his hand in private, mind you, this wasn't meant for public consumption. Well, it's interesting that the angels are guiding them to fear the Jesuits. So, might that say something about the Protestant versus counter-reformation Jesuit battle of whom the demonic realms like to use and influence and who they want to steer their disciples away from. Something to think about. And of course, the Jesuits are often the archetype for the evil inquisition. We know this. We've been through this many times. But from the Christian perspective, at least, if these are demonic manipulations that are guiding Dean and Kelly and they're synchronizing on hating the Jesuits, well, it's pretty interesting that in occult Catholicism, when we talked about the golem of spiritualism, 
how he went through the book where people were channeling stuff through a Ouija board. And surprise, surprise, those spirits on the Ouija board were trying to tell everybody through the book they were writing that we needed to avoid religious intolerance akin to the Spanish Inquisition. So why do these spirits that people are talking to, which most Christians would admit are demons, saying we need to hate the Spanish Inquisition, that's horrible, and also in this instance, you need to avoid the Jesuits? That seems very odd to me, in conjunction with all of the research we've talked about where these Masons or Bavarian Illuminati even admit that they use Protestants as proxy warriors and that their Illuminist occult doctrines do much better in Protestant nations and it's the Catholic nations that they fear being caught in and are the ones who are the most quote-unquote superstitious. So we have objective history and spiritual information despite what anybody thinks about its validity. It's interesting how those things synchronize. Anyways, we will talk more about that later and read a bit more on that Jesuit issue, but for now, we'll move on. And when you read the encounters with these angels and what they tell Dee and Kelly, they're very bipolar. There seems to be a lot of good cop, bad cop going on. Some might call this trauma-based mind control. There's these heavenly, lovely visions, and then there's these horrifying, awful, wicked visions and it seems to trigger them into all these things, and it's using a lot of, I would guess say, Protestant-type fear porn about end times and the apocalypse and all of those things that you would typically find from that evangelical-type rhetoric in the Bible-thumping belt or something like that. That is kind of woven into these images from the demons, or, excuse me, angels, as we should call them, you can decide if they're fallen or not. Or again, this could all be psychological manifestations, but as we said in the intro, we're not going to worry so much about that viewpoint. It would make things way too complex and way less interesting. But nonetheless, these quote-unquote angels are performing that sort of Bible-thumping end-times pastor role, if you will. The difference being the pastors are invoking images or they're saying, I got a vision of the apocalypse and the end times and everything's blowing up and whatever, right? But instead, the demons or angels, excuse me, are giving them visions directly of all of these apocalyptic things. Direct gnosis, if you will. You don't have to rely on your pastor's direct gnosis to get the real McCoy on these end times, apparently. But regardless of all of that, it seems that this is sort of used to try to traumatize Dee and Kelly during these visions, and then they wake up from the visions and they just basically do whatever these quote-unquote angels say. And it seems to me somewhat ironic because we talked about a little battle with the Jesuits here. And one of the typical stereotypes of the Jesuits is they're so authoritarian that you can't think for yourself and you were just blind slaves to your Jesuit superior, or whatever it is, or Catholicism in general is supposedly like that, right? And I understand that that can happen or can be abused, but nonetheless, it seems very ironic that Dee and Kelly are complete slaves to these quote-unquote angels who are directing them to do stuff, and sometimes they disobey, but they get very traumatized later on and chastised pretty hard, and of course when you engage in vision seeking you get some pretty ugly visions as part of the punishment it would seem so if you read some of the actual accounts of what these angels are 
saying or doing, and I might not have mentioned uh, Jason Louvre does a good job of sourcing in this book. There's lots of footnotes and, and whatnot. So these are taken from the diaries uh, to tell you about the accounts of what they saw. And it seems pretty obvious to me that there's a good cop, bad cop, trauma-based mind control situation going on here. No different than how Hollywood and the media manipulate us uh, to make us obedient and go do destructive things in the name of freedom or Christianity or whatever buzz term is going to rouse the people. And then there's also an element of playing exoteric Catholicism. They didn't have a problem with saying the Catholic Church was the true church at times and even rail against Protestantism, but it's really ironic that they acted more like Protestants and the plan was to transmute the church into this synchronicity of religions, or that's part of their end times schema. And essentially, that plan is what masonry became. And we talked about the infiltration of the Catholic Church and the plan to invert it and preach the universal Masonic doctrine instead, as revealed by Albert Pike in the 30th chapter of Morals and Dogma. And that's something we go over extensively in the members section in the Pike Templar series. So surprise, surprise, in Protestant Britain, we have that same plan or agenda by these said angels. And then later on, that same basic foundational plan comes from Freemasonry, which mainly came out of England and was also thriving in Germany, the two OG Protestant Reformation nations. And the funny thing is, one is more magical and dealing with spirits and talismans and the forces of nature and then it turns into a more scientific rationalism which would say all that stuff is superstition but it's strange how their plan ends up being kind of the same in regards to catholicism so how does that work what is really directing these things here questions you would want to ask and if you want to go to scripture alone and most christians can agree that satan wanted to be like the most high equality with God, ascending to the recesses of the north, etc. And if the Catholic Church had something to do with being Christ's church, then wouldn't you see that same thing playing out in the temporal realm, where Satan wants to infiltrate that same church and exalt himself and transmute it into Freemasonry and completely purge the old world understanding. People obviously can disagree that the Catholic Church is the true Church of Christ, but if it were, wouldn't that criteria fit? And is this evidence for it that we see from both spiritual information and what most Christians would agree is demonic information, and then also the basic resources that we have taken from in Barwell's memoirs, and the Masons themselves on what their plan is to infiltrate the Catholic Church, because they certainly view the Catholic Church as representing what the Christianity is that is historical and what they hate. They just want to transmute it and make it subjective in their own interpretation. And you will find that with these angels directing Dean Kelly, where they try to say that, yeah, the Eucharist is the presence of Christ, but it's not because it's objectively that. It's because your belief in it makes it that. So it's kind of new agey, right? Well, my consciousness, if I believe something, that will magically make it happen. And that's part of the system of magic on some level, or at least certain people's schools of thought. And then there's the whole forces of nature tapping into it kind of thing that goes with that. So there's a lot of subjectivity that goes with it. And that's one of the criticisms of Protestantism from the Catholic viewpoint 
is that that subjective gnosis outside of the church puts you in danger and it's going to be a lot of false things disguised as light, which is what the adversary does. And of course, whenever you go through any of these writings in masonry or, you know, whatever it is, it's always talking about light and all those sorts of things. And all these angels are talking about, you know, light, illumination, the end times, and what Christ really is. They talk a lot about Christ, but the definition is radically different. And that is the whole point of why Freemasonry ended up being so successful. And if Louvre is tying D and all of this stuff with Kelly, and then obviously these esoteric people in Prague surrounding Holy Roman Emperor as being the forerunners of that tradition, then that's all consistent and makes sense. And it was also nice to see Mr. Louvre admitting that Freemasonry played a very big role in the American and French Revolution. I'm sure he probably views that as a good thing, but nonetheless, at least it's admitted that that was a big part of it, whereas the modern secular academia doesn't want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole and wants to distance those things as much as possible, just like they'd love to distance people like John Dee and Edward Kelly from all of this stuff. And can you really do it? And that's, I guess, the value of Mr. Lou's work is that thesis is very well demonstrated, even if he seems to think it's a good thing, and obviously from the Catholic side, <laughs> that's not so good, and it's going to open up the New World Order beast akin to something like the Aeon of Horus of Crowley, which, segueing into the next part, there's a lot about Crowley magic at the end that is tied and synchronizing with the things revealed by the angels to John Dee. And so how that's relevant to some of the research from the website and the YouTube channel is that so much of it is reflected in the Crowley Babylon stuff tied to the JFK assassination. It's really quite striking. And what do we know about the JFK assassination? That was a huge transmutation of Catholicism during the 1960s into worshipping the Promethean god of Freemasonry with the Apollo 11 event being the magical event that transmuted the consciousness of everybody into scientism worship. And that is essentially at the heart of everything that Louvre is promoting in this book, salvation through technology, but of course his version is tied to ritual magic as well. So it's very much a Promethean salvation akin to stuff we read in Blavatsky's Theosophy, Occult Science, all that kind of stuff. And speaking of which, there's an interesting passage from Mr. Louvre about Crowley's take on the Aeon of Horus and how that relates to all the things going on with Edward Kelly and John Dee. And this is from page 395 and 396. And basically we talked about the weird relationship of Dee and Kelly with Protestantism and Catholicism and sort of jumping back and forth between the two. Similar to masonry, when it's convenient, you put on a mask of whatever you want to blend in with, but you have a secret esoteric doctrine that is unifying all of them in this way that all of the profane don't understand, and you're getting your secret knowledge from all of these weird angelic experiences, very similar to Crowley, who got a lot of his knowledge from his quote-unquote holy guardian angel that he tied to Baphomet, the number 93, the solar hermetic phallic Lucifer, and all that stuff, right? All that crazy Crowley stuff. So, in regards to that, in the Crowley magical system with Babylon and what all that stuff represents, it's pretty interesting that Zion is established above Binah. So, Zion, what version of Zion, right? 
But for you esoteric-minded folks, Bina is the sphere of Saturn on the Kabbalah Tree of Life, and that's one of those things that represents the Demiurge. Um, obviously, Crowley also attributes that to uh, is it Hesed from Hokmah, the Tetragrammaton. That's all stuff that I've researched. I don't really remember it because it's not as relevant anymore. Um, but the point is, the Demiurge, the Catholic God, the evil Demiurge, that's not the highest God. Far, far from it. Right? And so, in these Crowleyan rituals, that's all to purge yourself of the black doctrine of sin tied to Catholicism, as we mentioned in the occult Catholicism series, when we talked about Crowley's magic and black and white magic. But, the important thing here is that Crowley is getting these visions from angelic beings similar to Dee and Kelly. So, Louvre is documenting all of Crowley's crazy expeditions into the spirit realm, and conversations with his holy guardian angel and all the weird stuff he was doing with that. And so thus, apparently, he says on page 394 that the angel Ave, or Av, appears from the D and Edward Kelly sessions to Crowley. So apparently Crowley's getting the same information from these angels that D and Kelly were encountering. Now whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they're claiming so. But I think the information that is extracted is very interesting because this is part of how Crowley establishes tarot deck. And it says, again on page 395, the tarot, Crowley is told, contains the entire stored wisdom of the old Aeon. And, however, this gives glimpses of the wisdom of the new Aeon in this Liber Loageth or whatever, Loageth which has been hidden for 300 years because Kelly, not Dee, extracted it from the Tree of Life too early out of desperation. It is explained, now here's the important bit, that Martin Luther was Kelly's master and overthrew the church, but that Kelly rebelled because he saw the Protestant era would become even worse than the Catholic era. So the idea is that this is the apocalypse or something like that. But the problem is Kelly did not understand Luther's true purpose which was to prepare the way for the Aeon of Horus. So I find it very strange, once again, that the information given to people like Aleister Crowley, which most Christians, and especially Protestants, would probably think that he's getting demonic information. And it's pretty interesting that the demons are revering Luther and how he's paving the way to the Aeon of Horus by inciting the Protestant Reformation. So Luther is almost kind of like an unsung hero here. And we saw this in Crowley philosophy where he's like, you know, Luther, he was kind of crazy, but he did lead us towards progress in the magical traditions and realms, trying to get away from the black doctrine of sin that the Catholics try to enforce on everybody. And then progress evolves us into the Aeon of Horus. Now, this is oddly similar to the secular world, which will always revere Luther for that spark of individual enlightenment that led us to progress, even if he was anti-Semitic, even if he was kind of nutty with this or that, or black and white, at least it got us away from those dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why the liberal tradition will always have a bit more of a favorable view of somebody like Luther than the counter-reformation Jesuits, at least the ones that weren't liberal humanists. So my question would be, why is it the secular academic world and Whig history which would have nothing to do with this magic and superstition and wants to divorce it completely from their tradition, why do they have these same fundamental things and ideas about people like Luther and battling this old world Catholic regime as people like Crowley 
And not only that, but the same that synchronizes with these quote-unquote angels that are encountering these people like Crowley and Dee and Kelly. Why are they all synchronizing on the same thing and viewing this Reformation as this great thing and changing eventually the Catholic Church into a universal one-world religion that is going to be the synthesis of religions, which is essentially, again, the plan of Freemasonry, the infiltration of the church. We see all that going on today. And the Protestants were paving the way for that. They were leading that torch of enlightenment towards that. Even if they were a little backwards, at least we evolved out of that. That seems very strange to me if you're on the Protestant side of the coin in Christianity and you want to call the Catholic Church evil, yet all the things that you're saying are evil, like Crowley and demonic magic or whatever, they're all telling you that the Reformation was this awesome thing and that the Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation regime was the number one enemy that we got to never go back to and must always fight that tyranny and oppression eternally, similar to the Marxist versions of fascism and forever fighting it. So, the point being, if you're going to be sympathizing with Luther and the Protestant Reformation, why are some of your best bud allies crazy occultists like Crowley and John Dee and Edward Kelly who are being told the wife swap and also part of the secular realm promoting that same version of progress? Even though everybody's version of progress and what it's supposed to be that's outside of the Catholic worldview is very different and conflicts, and you might battle on this or that, but they all unify on these same fundamental things in breaking away from that old, evil, demiurge, dark ages order. Again, I find that very strange when you have these odd bedfellows in this rebellion. And furthermore, in Catholicism, they would teach you that once you go outside of the church and the sacraments, you're opening yourself up to demonic revelations with gnosis outside the church and that's exactly what these people are doing and look what the information they're getting is jesuits are bad catholic doctrines of sin are bad and evil and oppressive and we need to work to a new aeon but that new aeon keeps changing with the times so red flags to consider and the last thing we'll mention before moving on here with all of the points that relate to the schism 206 research it's very interesting that these angelic beings are pushing the Book of Enoch. Now, there is a distinction to be made here. This Book of Enoch that Dee and Kelly were dealing with with the angels was different from the one with the Watchers. However, they were exposed to another occultist who was kind of like a mentor to Dee, who was promoting the Book of Enoch as we tied it to the sons of God and all of that stuff with the Watcher Angels. So, no matter what, that figure of Enoch is being revered and interpreted in this way that's tied to Kabbalah and all these sorts of things. And that's very relevant to what we talked about with the Kabbalah of Christendom and Kabbalistic Jews trying to get the Christians addicted to Kabbalah and transmute Christianity. Very similar to what we talked about with all of the rhetoric surrounding the sons of God when you take the angelic union with human beings rather than the Augustinian or Thomas Aquinas more Catholic version of the Sethite view. Now we talked about all of the dangers of taking the supernatural angelic union as leading people into Gnostic heresies and quote-unquote Jewish fables as warned against in the New Testament and how much of that stuff was tied to Manichaean dualism 
and the Nephilim and the abortions being tied to the Demiurge, which is, again, the Catholic God being the abortion from that viewpoint. And how it's odd that the Protestants, when they get their Gnosis outside the church, often end up talking like Gnostics and saying similar things to them, even if they're unaware that they're Gnostic. That's very strange to me as well. Is there a dialectic there where they magically unify on the same thing, despite for different reasons denying the authority of the Catholic Church? And so, why are these angelic beings that, again, most Christians would think are demonic, are pushing the book of Enoch and that there's secrets in there you have to think about, which is very much similar to the Watcher Angels and all this stuff tied to that Sons of God narrative. And I suppose the further irony of it is that what's usually warned about is that the Watcher Angels are giving out information that humans aren't supposed to have that is demonic. And then here we have an instance where Dee's getting information from these so-called angels that most Christians would agree would probably be demonic. And that's talking about secrets in Enoch. Even if it's a different Enoch, he's still been exposed through a sort of mentor to the book of Enoch tied to the fallen angel Azazel and stuff like that. So he's already got it in his head that there's something esoteric about Enoch, generally speaking. So let's investigate this man named Gilam Postel, who had John Dee as a student, and I believe a student before these quote-unquote angelic visions. And that's more important because that means... D was exposed to this type of rhetoric that we'll be talking about here, and the angels are going to capitalize on that and perhaps use that to their advantage to manipulate him to do all these other things and, like we said, go visit the Holy Roman Emperor in Prague, surrounded by occult Jews. And here's the interesting dialectic of the humanist Renaissance Kabbalism and Protestantism where that, basically, the former, turns into Freemasonry and all that stuff. And my point is, they might have their own little battles here and there. I believe that Luther had some problems with some humanist types, but also he kind of worked with some because they wanted to, you know, figure out what books are going to be in the Bible based upon their own opinion, authority, whatever it might be. Nonetheless, the traditional Catholic side that wasn't succumbing to all of this Kabbalistic mysticism to an extreme degree thought both sides were heretical, right? That's the point of the Inquisition, keeping out Protestantism and quote-unquote Judaizing and then deliberating these heretical ideas that are tied to Neoplatonism without the proper quote-unquote Catholic alchemy as we called it. So with that paradigm in mind, this figure is very interesting who's going to enter the equation here. And it says on page 51, While on the continent of Europe, Dee would make a great number of contacts with whom he would keep in regular correspondence after his return to England. Dee also continued his occult studies under the polymath Guillaume Postel, the most accomplished Kabbalist of his time, who impressed Dee with his study of Hebrew as a divine language. So here's the interesting thing. We have Hebrew being mystifying people in this occult side of things. It's tied to ritual magic, Kabbalah and Christendom, as we've mentioned. And you also have Judaizing going on in Protestantism, where Luther is looking to the Masoretic texts, working with particular rabbis. And we talked about King Henry VIII using a Jew to try to justify his divorce 
in the Kabbalah and Christendom episodes. So, are there two sides of this coin here? The Freemasonic coin, or what would turn into Freemasonry, and then the Protestant side of the coin that would turn into, you know, what we kind of know as Scripture alone, I don't need the church, I don't need anything, I just need my Holy Spirit, my Bible, my Jesus. And the irony being that that tradition, which started out with a drastic 180 on the views of the Jews from Luther, who was saying, oh, we love the Jews, we want to convert them and be nice to them, and those mean Catholics in Spain are kicking them out or, you know, are using the Inquisition on them, how dare they, they're completely anti-Semitic, whatever. And then, of course, Luther turns into the most rabid anti-Semite that previewed or foreshadowed Nazism. That's why Luther was so useful to the Nazis, because the Nazis hated both the Jews and the Catholics. And so Luther was railing against both. So you can see why they adopted him as their Aryan hero. But nonetheless, isn't it interesting how that scripture alone viewpoint kind of turned into Christian Zionism, which is the complete opposite of what Luther would be about? And at the same time, there's a lot of Protestantism that hails Luther as a hero and blames the Catholic Church for Nazism, where Luther was way more beneficial to the Nazis than anything Catholic that was just tied to some superstitious Judaic Mediterranean cult that was part of an inferior race, right? And then similar to the Nazis, their hating the Jews actually helped Zionism. They were the ones who had the Zionist plan, along with the Zionist Jews, to export as many to Palestine. And because of the Nazis, that was much more of a reality that happened. So, another strange byproduct. And when people try to lead the charge of their own gnosis outside of the church, it's funny how the opposite tends to happen. So anyways, slight digression. Back to Mr. Postel. With regards to all of this Hebrew mysticism... The languages of all the world stem from the Hebrew letter Yod, apparently. And he also studied the I Ching, which had some sort of mathematical outlook that helped contribute to this Kabbalah. And it says math for D was the primary way of understanding the laws of nature and the mind of God. So there you go. That's like the naturalism of masonry. The numbers, laws of nature are tied to language, Kabbalah, and we can basically tap into God and the impersonal deity that's tied to these laws of nature and seize our own destiny with it. And, you know, again, as we know, the occult science Promethean mindset. And of this mindset, Dee and his contemporaries thought that this was a fresh revelation unveiling a herefore unseen world of divine planning and order just behind the apparent chaos of the world's facade. So, the Catholic world that everybody's known for a thousand plus years is a facade, right? It's an illusion. It's the demiurge. It's chaos. We talked about how God is not the author of confusion and chaos, and that's what Paul said when he was railing against the Gnostics. What's well, funny, they're projecting that chaos under that very same Catholic church that Paul was part of, and... That becomes the false illusion, the Dark Ages, if you will. And this renaissance that's tied to Neoplatonism in conjunction with the Protestant Reformation is going to lead the way into a new aeon, which Crowley says eventually ends up in the aeon of Horus. And in these angelic visions and revelations, Louvre later reveals how the virgin and the harlot crap that's tied to Gnosticism is part of these angelic visions in a way that corresponds very well with the 
Nagamati text, The Thunder Perfect Mind. And we'll read from that later on, probably in the second hour. But back to the point. This is all Gnostic stuff, and it's tied to Judaizing, whether it's the mystical version of it in Neoplatonism, or we have that coming from all of these Protestant reforming countries in whichever side of the coin you want to go, right? We've talked about this, the dialectic of occultism or Gnosticism and Protestantism all throughout occult Catholicism. And here we go. It's no different here. And they both unify on hating the Jesuits. Now, here's an interesting thing that happens and develops. Postel is going to attempt to enter the Jesuits that is during the time of all of the Converso crisis or its origins where a lot of Conversos were converting and there were some issues. And this is all stuff we talked about in the Ignatius Loyola episode. So that's another one you might want to re-listen to or go back and hear if you're not familiar with it. But quick recap. So the Jesuits, despite its founding, is still going through some wheat and tares battles. And think about what Satan's plan is, as we talked about, wanting to be like the most high and infiltrating. And so we see that attempt with the Jesuits, but we know that got purged out. And the Converso crisis ended with the Jesuits being very wary of crypto infiltration. So there was no more infiltration of any of this stuff into the Jesuits for hundreds of years, at least on the whole, on a mass scale. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule. And so... Postel wants to enter the Jesuits during this time, where it's a bit more new and vulnerable. So, would that be another infiltration attempt? But we're going to find out that he gets kicked out pretty quickly. He's apparently not very adept at disguising these things and boiling the frog. He just turns the heat up to 11 all at once. And so we'll read from the book on that issue, but a few more passages that will lead up to it here. And so it says, further on page 51, Postel is centrally important to the development of Dee's thought in that he gave the younger man a why. Beyond the technical disciplines Dee was learning, Postel initiated Dee into his grand eschatology. So Dee is being initiated into this Jewish Kabbalah by this Postel dude. And we're going to find out some interesting things attached to him, like the Book of Enoch. Postel believed himself to be Elias Artista, the alchemical messiah, a mythological figure central to the beliefs of natural philosophers during the Renaissance, who Paracelsus had prophesied would restore the totality of art and science before the end of the world. As such, Postel was a proponent of a new universalist religion that would unite the warring factions or religious factions of Christendom as well as Judaism and Islam, in a single hermetic whole based upon the gospel and the uniting force of love. That sounds like Freemasonry, and also Jewish Kabbalah. And here's where it gets a little weirder, not if it wasn't already. Postel's zeal for global restitution was informed at least in part by the prophetic utterances of Mother Zuana, Zuana, Z-U-A-N-A, a mystic in her 50s at the time Postel knew her, who Postel believed was the living incarnation of the Shekinah, the female divine presence, the divine feminine, if you will, and whose soul, he believed, entered his own body after Zwana's death. Now, I would suggest you look up this Mother Zwana lady. It's pretty wild what you'll find. She was called the Virgin of Venice 
Hmm, Venice. Interesting city. We heard that city pop up a lot in our Kabbalah of Christendom, and that is where the Talmud was allowed to be printed by Pope Leo X. And we know that Shekinah is a very Judaizing term. Funny how that's floating around Venice during this very time. We talked about all that stuff in the Kabbalah of Christendom episode, so I'd suggest you watch that episode or listen to it, because it's like the sister episode to this. It's the older sister episode to this one on John D. And so continuing, this is very interesting here. For these heretical and millenarian views, here we go, the future millennialism that we talked about being a heresy versus the amillennialism of Augustine and, and stuff like that. We talked about that in the Sons of God episode as well. Um, so it's all connected here. The Sons of God episode and the Kabbalah Christendom suggest you listen to those to go with this. And this millennarian view will also be tied to these angelic visions and John D on some level. But continuing on back to the point, Postel was expelled from Venice in 1549. And in his quest to establish the new divine order, once he gets kicked out of Venice where all these occult Jews are roaming around, he makes connections with Ignatius of Loyola in Rome and attempts to enter an early incarnation of the Society of Jesus. So again, this is right at the beginning where Ignatius of Loyola, we talked about him having a balanced viewpoint on Jewish infiltration, but also being accepting of conversos and more welcoming them than the more hardcore, you know, no converso can ever be good kind of viewpoint. We obviously don't believe that. We don't align with that, but there is also reason for suspicion. So we take the middle ground here very much like Loyola did. But <laughs> despite that, this is really funny. The Jesuit founder, Loyola, was not impressed and had Postal investigated for heresy. So as we mentioned, if Loyola was a crypto-Jewish illuminist converso, it's pretty funny that he completely rejected all of this esoteric Jewish Kabbalah when it was very overt and obvious in Mr. Postel's rhetoric. So perhaps he's more of a dupe and he's not prone to the arts of infiltration and he's probably just really excited about his New Age ideology and trying to share it with everybody, and he's getting cast down, right? Whereas the people who infiltrate and are good at it are going to be much more secretive and, like we mentioned, much better at boiling the frog and starting out on number one heat and slowly turning it up when it's convenient, and when it gets to 11, people just think it's still on the first setting because they've grown so accustomed to it. So... Ignatius of Loyola is not impressed with this Hebrew Kabbalah and millennialism and all of this stuff that Postel is preaching and initiating John D into. Now here's where the Enoch stuff comes into play. This is very interesting as well. While in Rome, he was told of the Book of Enoch by an Ethiopian priest and attempted to press upon the Pope the importance of the Book of Enoch, the Biblical Apocrypha, and even the Zohar in interpreting scripture. <laughs> After meeting Dee in Paris, he was interviewed by the Inquisition, who found him not evil but mad, and imprisoned him until 1564. So he had a five-year stint in prison because of his Zohar promotion and Book of Enoch Jewish Kabbalah. And apparently this imprisonment worked, because when he was released from prison, he recanted all of these heresies and stop promoting Jewish Kabbalah. So here's an instance where the Inquisition stopped heresy from spreading, and they made a deliberation thinking, you know what, this guy isn't bad-intentioned, 
but we can't let him promote this stuff. And he's kind of just a little bit nutty. He's kind of a new age nut. Maybe he just needs to chill it out in an inquisitional prison, which we know were much better than the secular prisons from Cayman's Spanish Inquisition book. And in fact, I mentioned on Tim Kelly's show a while back that people in secular prisons, or state prisons, I should say, would sometimes say blasphemous things so they could be transferred to the inquisitional prisons because they were much nicer. So that's kind of funny. But nonetheless, the inquisition worked here. And this guy stopped promoting all of this New Age Jewish Kabbalah. But of course, Mr. John D. was never caught by these Catholic inquisitions. And one of the reasons is the angels were helping him to avoid such inquisitions and the Jesuits who were working behind the scenes to figure out where these heretical Jewish Kabbalistic ideas were being promoted and also general Protestant rhetoric as well. Now, as far as I understand, there is a Jewish aspect to Ethiopia. There are Ethiopian Jews. And so it's interesting that this Ethiopian priest is the one who had this book of Enoch and preaching Zohar prophecies to interpret scripture. And that this poor guy wanted to bring this to the Pope and be like, Mr. Pope, listen to this secret knowledge. Like, we just missed this for a thousand years. I mean, you could see why they deemed him to be kind of mad. Like, no one is going to bring that so blatantly into the papacy and plain sight of people. Uh, and promote their New Age ideology. It just, I don't know, it just seems a little comical to me. But I think the Pope at the time was Pope Paul III, and he basically initiated or gave the okay to the Jesuits and was helping to formulate the Council of Trent and all these counter-reformation things. He was seen as like a big counter-reformation Pope. I'm assuming this is the Pope, but he died in the same year that we're talking about here, but it wasn't until, I think, November, so it's most likely that this is the Pope that he brought this to, the guy who really embodied uh, initiating the Counter-Reformation, so that's not the guy you'd want to bring it to, I would say. But nonetheless, like we said, there's a success story here where you recanted and stopped promoting all those things, whereas D continued on. And so, of course, D is back in Britain, where it's a lot easier to avoid the inquisitional eye because you just have to deceive the zealous Protestants that you're not doing anything funky. And apparently that's a lot easier in the Protestant countries than it is in the Catholic ones, especially with the Jesuits roaming around. And also recall that the Zohar has its own end times where the beast is evil Rome, which, of course, during these times was the Catholic Church. So it's funny how that stuff is being promoted while we have Martin Luther calling the Catholic Church the beast and the harlot of Revelation. And then you also have the Zohar being encouraged to interpret scripture by people like Postel. And we know that that's very anti-Roman Catholic Church if you flesh out its end times scenarios with the 66 King Messiah that we talked about perhaps being tied to the 66 books of the Bible in some strange esoteric way in Christian Zionism. But nonetheless, both are rejecting the Catholic Church and at the expense of it and calling it the Satan, right? Like the Pharisees called Christ Satan. It's funny how that works. And so finishing up the reading, it says, Postal's ideas would live on in his student in John D who sought their universal key in his Monas Hieroglyphica. And here's the important bit. 
They would be echoed within his angelic conversations in the 1580s when Edward Kelly delivered the practical blueprint for the new world religion. The seed was planted by Postel, but it would take three decades to bear fruit in the work of his most brilliant student, Mr. John Dee. And so, despite Dee in England being known as part of Catholicism, and even the angels telling him to pretend to be Catholic when it's convenient, well, it's funny how he didn't support the Catholic ruler in Mary, and actually was supporting Elizabeth's rise to the throne. And apparently, she asked John Dee to divine the future. And reading here from page 54, it says, Elizabeth, caught between appearing loyal to Mary and preparing to have to take and defend the throne, asked Dee to divine the future. On May 28, 1555, nice Kabbalistic number of the year, Dee was arrested for attempting magic in a rented room and was interrogated under suspicion of casting horoscopes of Philip, Mary, and Elizabeth. And, furthermore, that it was seen as evidence that he was conspiring with Elizabeth to unseat Mary. Conjuring, calculating witchcraft, and even having a familiar spirit were the leveled charges. Now here's where it gets very interesting. It says D had been caught based on information from two informers, George Ferrers and Thomas Prideaux. Only a few days after Dee's arrest, one of Ferrer's children was dead, the other blind, stroking fears that Dee was a sorcerer. And so these rumors calculated that Dee had created voodoo dolls of Philip and Mary to work magic against them, and that he had conjured demons, and that he had a vast occult conspiracy against Mary. So, I don't know what to make of it. It's pretty strange that the guy who catches you and brings you in for witchcraft... His children are either dead or blind within a few days. That's a very strange coincidence. So earlier I might have jumped the gun when I mentioned D was getting off scot-free from the Inquisition, but apparently in this instance, because it's under Bloody Mary's reign and she's Catholic, well, then they were investigating him. But after Elizabeth takes over, D doesn't have any of those problems, it would seem. And so with Elizabeth in Chapter 4... Louvre starts exploring her quote-unquote Protestantism, but it's secretly Freemasonry and a synthesis of Christian and pagan beliefs. And it's kind of akin to that flopping between Protestantism and Catholicism when it's convenient and having that esoteric religion. And this is sort of the humanism that is tied to Freemasonry and it's synchronizing paganism with Christianity in the reverse way, right? where it's making them on an equal footing, whereas, obviously, the Catholic Church's Catholic alchemy is purging the bad parts of paganism that don't work with the morality and the person of Christ and the Trinity, and it is purging all of that and co-opting what does work. So, as I've mentioned before, there's the Kabbalistic version of synchronizing the Jewish and Greek culture and Freemasonry and Jewish Kabbalah, and then there's the Catholic Church's version of no distinction anymore between Greek or Jew or Gentile and Jew through its teachings on Christ. So essentially, Elizabeth is part of that occult synchronicity of religion, and that's why she's so chummy with John Dee, or that's what this is all leading towards, and this is under the guidance of the angels wanting this to happen. Elizabeth is going to be the esoteric virgin 
on the throne, which is ironic because she's usurping Mary, right? Catholic Mary. And we know the Virgin Mary being an important part of Catholicism. And that's usually something that the Protestants get cranky about. But in this Masonic version, you have this esoteric virgin where they completely redefine virginity to being the whore and the virgin that's tied to that Thundermind Gnostic book we talked about that will be very important later on in the second hour. So to wrap up, we'll just summarize a few points that we'll explore more on in the second hour. We'll talk about what the angels direct D to establish through Elizabeth here, which is the British Empire with a new Christian religion uniting all humanity, preparing for the second coming of Christ. Now we're going to define that second coming of Christ and it's not exactly what most Protestants think it is from the esoteric viewpoint, but, however, are they also being manipulated to bring about this esoteric viewpoint unaware, thinking it's their version of Jesus Christ hanging out with them on earth for a thousand years with the elect in physical form. And Louvre also relates this not just to the British, but American empire, so the Anglo-American agenda, that is directly tied to this spiritual blueprint, as he calls it, of these angelic systems that D is unifying with that is tied to the birth of modern science secret societies that liberalized Europe, in other words, Freemasonry, America's spiritual calling, and he even relates it to the creation of the state of Israel and American foreign policy and also the space program, right? The moon landing, so-called. And this is all to unite mankind in a state similar to before the fall, where there's an original language. And perhaps this gets into the Adam Kadmon and the Blavatsky Kabbalah about the primordial man and all that crap. And that apocalypse and revelation is basically the dissolving of the old world order and then birthing this new one out of it in whatever incarnation. And this is to reverse the fall of mankind and return all of nature to God and create a new Eden, promoted or prompted, I should say, by this apocalypse. And it's part of this angelic system tied to Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, Royal Society, Golden Dawn, Aleister Crowley, Jack Parsons, you name it. And he says, Indeed, just as the work of St. Paul is responsible for turning the ideas of a Jewish messianic state into the Holy Roman Empire, Old World Christendom, which the Counter-Reformation was defending, well, Mr. John Dee is responsible for the exact opposite, and those of Protestant dissenters into a global empire of angels. But would they be fallen angels? That's the question. And as we know, Protestantism and its revolt is what enabled this, and that is reconfirmed over and over here, and even Aleister Crowley believes that. And he's very thankful for Mr. Martin Luther for helping to spark everything towards the Aeon of Horus. And this narrative of progress that we are rethinking humanity is thanks to Constantinople and the Orthodox priests fleeing to the Italian city-states, bringing with them Greek and Latin manuscripts that Western Europe had lacked access to. So thanks to Eastern Christianity, Byzantium, all of that Renaissance Neoplatonism and Gnosticism was preserved, and at its fall, they brought it all over. So we talked about that being similar to the Cathars, where all of the dualism and Manichaeanism was coming from Constantinople, and Byzantium, and people like Papa Nisitas, and so this is just version 2.0 of that after Byzantium's fall to the Turks in 1453. 
And so this was all to rediscover what humanity had known before the fall of the Tower of Babel. So apparently the Tower of Babel, before it fell, before God confused the nations, I guess that was a good thing in their viewpoint. And the fall from Eden itself. We're going back to the primordial true source of knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God. And while doing so, the viewpoint is that God had progressively distanced himself from human affairs. And so thus, this is the idea that as time goes on and science tells us more about how we should behave and think, we realize that God isn't a personal God and he doesn't intervene in human affairs like the Catholics tell us he does. No, 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 no. That's the old, outdated, Dark Ages way of looking at God. And we're going to evolve into this impersonal deity where we are God ourselves and one in this pantheistic monist soup or whatever. And even if there's some dualism that helps us break away from that beast of Babylon Catholic Church like the Cathars were trying to illuminate us to, nonetheless, the Theosophists can unify that dualism again into their Blavatsky-esque monistic oneness. And on page 14, Louvre gives an interesting insight that I would agree with, obviously. Uh, he says, Though Luther was quick to hang the label of Antichrist upon the Pope and the whore of Babylon upon Rome, perhaps a parallel narrative was at work. In their dual action to break the central authority of the church, it would be tempting to see the carnal and amoral Henry VIII as a reflection of the great beast and Elizabeth, exoterically the virgin queen, esoterically reflecting the scarlet-haired mystery Babylon, with Dee's work initiating the process of apocalypse itself, both terrestrially and celestially. So, ironically saying, the Catholics had some merit to view the Protestant Reformation as that actually being part of the beast system rising. And so, it's kind of funny that he identifies that there. But obviously, he's going to say the angels promoting their hermetic Kabbalah is the right way to go to bring about the Aeon of Horus. And the last thing we'll mention, I think, is a really good insight on page 34 to separate out and make distinctions on the Freemasons and Rosicrucian movement versus the Jesuits and Catholicism, which, again, the Protestants love to conflate as being one and the same, but I do not see the evidence for that. I really see the evidence that those things came out of Protestantism. So do they not want to recognize the ugly beast that they birthed and that the true reform happened with the counter-reformation regime and the Jesuits? Again, I think the evidence stacks up very much in favor of that viewpoint, but people can dissent from that all they'd like. But Louvre doesn't even take that viewpoint. He says, Central to this struggle of the old Roman Catholic order versus this new angelic esoteric Protestantism, as he'll call it, and we'll extensively go through what he means by esoteric Protestantism in the second hour. He says that central to this struggle was not only Dee's work, but the Rosicrucian and Freemasonic movements that drew inspiration from it and were concerned with establishing a new era of intellectual, scientific, and spiritual freedom away from the stultifying grasp of Rome. These secret societies were the explicit counterpart of the Jesuits and other activist holy orders in Catholicism. In short, they were the Protestant special forces. Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry were Protestant special forces on the esoteric CIA level, and the Jesuits were the opposite of that for Catholicism. And their ideals, meaning the Rosicrucians and esoteric Protestants, were concretized as modern science via the Royal Society 
and as the country of America via Francis Bacon's New Atlantis and the efforts of the Masonic Founding Fathers of America. In a quick preview of his esoteric Protestantism that he says may be defined by two main goals, one is the emphasis on individual salvation, i.e. not through the Catholic Church, and not just through the standard of Protestantism, but by direct experiment in the alteration of consciousness through alchemy and even ritual magic, with the goal being the restoration of man's individual fallen state. The second is the extension of this process to the entire planet via the acceleration of the events of revelation by human agency, again, revelation determined by them, as demonstrated above, this eschatological push following the late 19th century became the defining feature of Protestantism, especially in America. And then he goes on to tie this gnosis similar to being of Buddhist schools of enlightenment and how they're all one, man. You just gotta shed that exoteric Protestantism to see the esoteric version that's really Freemasonry. Not to neglect any Jewish hidden hand in that as well. So the last thing we'll mention is the three points of this Empire of Angels New World Order vision. And it is one, God is revealed through nature and the reflection of the mind of God itself is part of this unified whole that we are peering into and extracting scientific knowledge from. The second part is that the universe is holographic as above, so below. It's all an illusion, man. The Holy Roman Empire is just this illusion that was forced upon us as reality. And all the secret adepts are battling against that illusion. Even if their version of reality is completely subjective and conflicts all over the place with each other and all these different factions, they all can unify that that version of universal Holy Roman Empire started by the Apostle Paul religion, as Louvre previously mentioned, is the false demiurge. And that the third point is that the eschaton or second coming of Christ is the final reversal of mankind's fallen state. And it can be accelerated by human agents who have become illuminated into these mysteries and hermeticism and even operative magic and become active participants in this divine plan. So it's kind of like Kabbalah being a co-creator with God. And it's strangely Protestant without the ritual magic aspect. The second coming of Christ, we're going to have this amazing reign, this future millennium, and a reversal of mankind's fallen state. And these human elect can participate in that. But again, is the Protestant exoteric version just to get them on their side to bring about this esoteric Masonic version and then project all of that masonry onto the Catholic Church to neutralize that protest. And then when the church gets infiltrated and gets away from that traditional old world order and becomes more Masonic or more Protestant or more Judaized and then bad things happen to it, you keep blaming it on the old world church at the same time. And isn't that the ironic thing? When the Catholic Church becomes like those three viewpoints, that's when things really go wrong, and that's when you get all the weird sex scandals and crazy crap going on, and the scapegoating ritual continues. And the last thing Dee mentions is that this angelic instruction was very much akin to the enlightened and divined mankind symbolized by Adam Kadmon, as described in the Kabbalah of Rabbi Isaac Luria, a contemporary of D. So there we go. We have the Kabbalistic Jews of Christendom and creating Christian Kabbalah with a C, so-called, 
synchronizing with John Dee's angelic information and this esoteric Protestantism that is directed to go and try to work with the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who is totally enamored with occult Jews in his court. And all of that will birth this angelic New World Order. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.